Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. In the book of Revelation, we have discovered that it covers four different ages. Four different ages. And in chart form, it looks like this. Chapters 1 through 3 of the book were about the church age, which ends with the rapture. Chapters 4 through 19 are the seven-year tribulation age, which ends with the second coming of Christ. And then chapter 20 is the kingdom age, that 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, which that ends with the squashing of Satan's final rebellion and the great white throne judgment. And that brought us last week to the final two chapters of the book, which is the eternal age, chapters 21 and 22. And as we discovered, the first thing we need to know about this eternal age that goes on forever and ever and ever, it is that it is characterized by the word new, the word new. Now, a specific kind of new, this is the Greek kainos, new, which means new in character or quality, and not just new in time, not just like it's the next thing chronologically, but this is new as in better. We might say new and improved. And so in light of that particular newness, we we address the question, so okay, in this eternal age that goes on forever and ever, what exactly is new about it in contrast to the old age? And it is a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new intimacy, a new existence, a new everything. And one of the things I was most excited about was to see how Genesis 3, back when we talked about the fall, how it contrasts with Revelation 21, the eternal age. In Genesis 3, you've got paradise lost. Here in Revelation 21, we have paradise regained. In Genesis 3, you have heaven and earth created. And in Revelation 21, you've got a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis 3, the sun was created. In Revelation 21, there's no more sun. Genesis 3, night is established. In Revelation 21, there's no more night. Genesis 3, seas are created. Revelation 21, no more seas. Genesis 3, the curse is announced. And praise God, in Revelation 21, there's no more curse. In Genesis 3, death enters history. In Revelation 21, we learn there is no more death. Genesis 3, driven from the tree of life, and now we are restored to paradise. And in Genesis 3, sorrow and pain begin. Ah, but Revelation 21, no more tears and no more pain. So in short, all things are made new. Everything bad is made new forever and ever good. Well, in last week's text, today's, we wanted to go back into one of the things from last week's text and look at it more specifically, and that is a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, where it's said in verse 2, the apostle John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And as we said, the new Jerusalem is the current home for believers who have died, and will be the eternal home for all believers. That includes you and me. And the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that even Father Abraham, all the way back in the book of Genesis, was looking forward with great anticipation, great longing for this eternal home, the new Jerusalem. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 11.10. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
And now our task this morning is to join with Father Abraham in that sense of anticipation, that sense of longing, that sense of seeking to say, oh, I want to go there and I want to go there right now. For it says in Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And that is the new Jerusalem. We are to seek it like Abraham, look forward to it, and I believe today's message will help us to do just that because Revelation 21, 9 through 27, it gives us many details about the new Jerusalem. Now, let me qualify those details. Um, The apostle John, as he was receiving this vision, he was attempting to put into words something that really is indescribable. And now my job this morning is to try to take what John was describing as indescribable and describe it. So you can see the dilemma, right? We're going to do the best we can, but I think it gives us enough of an understanding for us to say, oh, that's going to be so, so incredible. So these details about the new Jerusalem, they include its measurements, its walls, its gates, its foundation, its streets, its glory, and its inhabitants. And I would invite you, would you stand with me as I read the word of God this morning? Revelation 21, verses 9 through 27. Put yourself in John's sandals this morning as he sees this vision. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me that holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Would you please bow your heads with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, supernaturally, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us a fresh glimpse of our eternal home? 
God, may that fresh glimpse overwhelm us to the point where it causes us to live differently in the here and now. Remind us this morning that here we live in homes and tents, if you will, as sojourners, but we look forward to that city with foundations. We are citizens of heaven. God, may we live accordingly. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please be seated? Now, the Bible begins in a garden in Genesis, and it ends in a city, and our eternal destiny is in a city. Does that bother anyone? I mean, we're, we're northern Michigan folks after all, right? We're here probably because we don't like cities in the first place. So um, if you have that concern, if you're like, I don't know that I really want to live in a city, please don't fret, okay? Because this city is unlike anything that you know of as a city today. Um, This particular city, the New Jerusalem, will be so spectacular that even the most country-loving of us will be just fine, okay? So today's passage gives us a taste of this city by telling us about its measurements, its walls, its gates, its foundation, its streets, its glory, and its inhabitants. Let's look first at its measurements. Just how big is this city? Verse 15 says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So the first question I have for you this morning is, what is the shape of the New Jerusalem. What is it? It is a cube. So we got to think in a whole other dimension now. All right, we're used to thinking about kind of this uh, flat kind of situation, and the New Jerusalem is not that. It is a cube. And here's why I think this is significant. For me, this was the most exciting part of the text. If we go back to our study of the tabernacle, you may or may not remember the dimensions of the Holy of Holies. It was 10 by 10 by 10. And then a little bit later on, when the the temple was built, the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple was 20 by 20 by 20. Are you putting some pieces together? Here's what that means. The, The place of God's dwelling, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and later in the temple, it was a cube. It was a cube. And so I believe that the fact that the New Jerusalem is also a cube is not a coincidence. This New Jerusalem, this cube, is going to function as the eternal Holy of Holies. Except that with this Holy of Holies, there is no veil to separate us from God. We will live in the Holy of Holies eternally in His presence. And that, more than anything, more than pearly gates, more than streets of gold, more than eternal rewards, That's what makes heaven heaven, the fact that we get to dwell in the holy of holies in the very presence of God Almighty. Now, if we were to say that to an ancient Jew who had the tabernacle or the temple and they understood the gravity of that veil and the significance of that separation, they would say, no way. But who is the way? Jesus. Jesus is the way that when he was crucified, what happened to that veil? It was torn into The way has been made for us to have intimate fellowship with God. Now, even now, with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, because we are flesh and because we have sin, um, there is still this sense of separation. But when we have our glorified bodies and we are in the presence of God in the new Jerusalem, there we will fellowship with him in that city. John goes on to say in verse 22, he says, And I saw no temple 
No temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You know, throughout history, cities have had temples which served as places of mediation between sinful human beings and a holy God. No, no temple in this city, though. Why? No longer any need for mediation. We are able to dwell in the holy of holies in God's presence for all eternity. So, it's a cube, and I don't think that's any accident. How big is the cube city? Well, it tells us it's 12,000 stadia. Now, that's an ancient measurement. How, how big is a stadia? One stadion is 607 feet. Now, by my Cadillac public high school education, 12,000 times 607 is 7,284,000 feet. When you convert that into miles, that means that the, the dimensions of the city are 1,380 miles on each side, or about the distance from Maine to Florida. Or if you dropped it into the middle of the United States, it would stretch from Canada to Mexico, from the Appalachian Mountains to the California border. But, but if you're not impressed by that, please don't lose sight of the fact that this is a cube. A cube. Another way to look at it is that it's approximately the size of the moon. But rather than living on the surface, we live in its interior, and so we have this great volume of real estate in the new Jerusalem, meaning that there's lots and lots of room for everyone. Commentator Henry Morris described it this way. He said, it should also be remembered that the new bodies of the resurrected saints will be like those of angels, no longer limited by gravitational or electromagnetic forces at present. Thus, it will be easy for the inhabitants to travel vertically as horizontally. Let that sink in for a minute, huh? Huh? Consequently, the streets of the city may well include vertical passageways as well as horizontal avenues, and the blocks could be real cubical blocks instead of square areas between streets as in a present-day earthly city. So, just dwell on that for a little bit and think about it. Again, this is, we're trying to describe the indescribable, but it tells us just enough to say that's pretty awesome. So, those are the measurements. Let's talk about the walls in verse 12. It says it, it had a great high wall. The new Jerusalem, heaven, has a wall, which makes me wonder what's up with that. A wall in heaven and a great high one at that. Now, what are walls typically for? For, for keeping bad stuff out, right? Or your dog in, you know, whichever is the case. But if there is no sin in heaven, and we know that there is not, then why does the new Jerusalem have walls at all? It seems unnecessary. I think there are three potential reasons for these walls. Number one, I believe the walls are for definition, for definition. And what I mean is that the walls help to identify the new Jerusalem, heaven, as a literal place rather than some fuzzy, nebulous state of mind. You see, heaven is an address. It's a real place and not just a state of being. Its walls give it definition and help to drive home this fact that it is a literal place. As it says in verse 17, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by measurements, by 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, which is interesting phraseology. And I think the point of saying, well, the human cubit is the same as the angelic cubit is to say that, hey, this is a real measurement. All right? This is a real measurement of a real wall in a real place. Heaven is a place, and the walls give it definition. Next, uh, why does the New Jerusalem have walls? I believe for symbolism. 
And there is some beautiful, beautiful symbolism associated with these walls. We're going to talk about that more in a few minutes. For now, it is enough to know that the gates and the foundations associated with these walls, they communicate a message. They communicate a message. Symbols which help us to eternally reflect on God's grace and our salvation. And as we reflect on this symbolism, it's going to inspire the deepest and the most passionate of worship. Third, why does the New Jerusalem have walls? I think it's just for beauty. We underestimate how much God loves beauty. We're very pragmatic people, aren't we? Very functional people. I love the, the artists of you out there because I'm not real strong in that area. Thank you, Beth Thompson, for all the work that you've done throughout this series and bringing some of the symbolism to life and making it colorful and artistic. God is the ultimate artist, and I think the walls exist in part for beauty. These aren't just concrete block walls. It says in verse 18, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. And so the, the New Jerusalem is built of otherworldly jewels that, that are transparent and so that they're able to radiate, to project the glory of God. And the walls of the New Jerusalem have an important role to play on it. They are like the projector, God's glory shining through them into all the universe. So those are three reasons why the New Jerusalem has walls. Next, let's look at the gates of those walls. Back to verse 12. It says, It had a gate, a great high wall, with twelve gates. And at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And so here's the beginning of the symbolism that I was talking about. The walls of the New Jerusalem have 12 gates. Is that number random? No, of course not. Of course not. The number of the gates, which is 12, corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. And here's where it gets even a little better. The arrangement of the 12 gates, if we were to think about the tabernacle, and we were to think about how the tribes of Israel were encamped around the tabernacle, how they were arranged, the arrangement of the 12 gates corresponds to the arrangement of the 12 tribes around the tabernacle. Isn't that awesome? That's beautiful. That's fantastic. I, lo I love the, how these gates are an eternal reminder of God's covenant relationship with Israel. For church, the Jews... They are the people of the promises, of the covenants, of the scriptures, of the Messiah. And for as much as we read the Old Testament and we roll our eyes about how disobedient and stubborn and stiff-necked they are, let us never lose sight of the fact that we New Testament believers, we have been engrafted into them. Let us not lose sight of that. And actually, we owe them a great debt of gratitude for the part they have played in our salvation. And so accordingly, um, the, the gates of the new Jerusalem will be an eternal reminder of our Jewish roots and heritage. We will see those gates and daily we'll be reminded of the old covenant and the, the role that the Jews have played in our salvation. And as was the case with the walls, these gates are not made out of ordinary materials. Rather, it says in verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Any you got any pearls? Some jewels? Very valuable, right? Very valuable. Now think about this. 
One pearl for one gate. Can you imagine the material value of such a gem on earth today? But there, there actually may be more here than meets the eye, and I got excited about this too. Um, some additional and beautiful symbolism. You see, gates of pearl may symbolize the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Gates of pearl may symbolize the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Now, think with me for a minute. Why, how, how might that work? Any of you pearl experts? How are pearls made? Through pain, right? Pain to an ad, let me read what commentator John Phillips has to say about this. He says, how appropriate. All other precious gems are metals or stones, but a pearl is a gem formed within the oyster, the only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound, and around the offending article that has penetrated and hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. The glory land is God's answer in Christ to wicked men who crucified heaven's beloved and put him to open shame. How like God it is to make the gates of the new Jerusalem of pearl, the saints as they come and go will be forever reminded as they pass the gates of glory that access to God's home is only because of Calvary. Think of the size of those gates. Think of the supernatural pearls from which they are made. What gigantic suffering is symbolized by those gates of pearl. Throughout the endless ages, we shall be reminded by those pearly gates of the immensity of the sufferings of Christ. Those pearls hung eternally at the access roots to glory will remind us forever of one who hung upon a tree and whose answer to those who injured him was to invite them to share his home. Does that not give you goosebumps when you read it? And that's one of the most beautiful images I've encountered. And again, an eternal reminder. What's, as we see that for all eternity, what's going to be our response? Worship. Worship. Well, there's one more thing we need to know about these gates, and it comes from verse 25. It says, And its gates will never be shut. The gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. In the ancient world, it was very important that the gates of the city were shut. Why? To keep the city safe from evildoers, from bands of marauders, from other people who might want to come and, and attack when the city was vulnerable. So the gates were shut. What do we do at night, typically? We lock our doors, turn on our security system, you know, so we do the same kind of thing. Um, if you're a locksmith in this life, you'll be out of a job in the next life, all right? Because there's no need for that in the New Jerusalem. No need for locks. No need for closed gates. For continually open gates in the New Jerusalem indicate our continual safety. Our continual safety. Maybe that's something we take for granted to some degree. But if you're in Afghanistan right now, if you're a Christian in particular in Afghanistan, how do you feel about safety? They, perhaps more than us this day, appreciate this aspect of the new Jerusalem. They will be able to lay their heads down and not have to worry about their safety. In the new Jerusalem, there is no sin, nothing to fear whatsoever. And again, what a beautiful image for us today in regard to our eternal safety. Next detail about the new Jerusalem is its foundations. Its foundations. Look at verse 14. 
It says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. All right, so hang with me. Once again, we have some important symbolism associated with the walls. Again, I think showing us the significance of why it has walls. Um, this time, the symbols are found in the wall's foundations. Here, the number of the foundations, 12, corresponds not to the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, but to the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And this is an eternal reminder of God's covenant with the church. Just as it says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. How appropriate it is that the foundations of the walls have the names of the 12 apostles inscribed upon them in light of this verse, these verses in Ephesians chapter 2. They are indeed the foundation upon which the church has been built. And so what we have here in the walls and the gates, the foundation, we have um, old covenant represented by the 12 gates. We have new covenant represented by these 12 foundations, eternal reminders of God's faithfulness and demonstrating continuity, the continuity of our faith, both in the Old and the New Testaments. It's kind of like a Bible lesson all in these walls, isn't it? You could look at these walls and you could kind of get the gospel in a nutshell. Well, as was the case with the walls and the gates, these foundations are not made out of everyday building materials. Look at verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald. You know, I'm not even going to go forth and read them all because the, the point is some of that stuff I've never even heard of before, right? I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. It's kind of, again, otherworldly. Um, I don't know even what color some of this stuff is. And it might be a bit, bit of a stretch, but as I look to make some of these connections between the eternal age and where we've come from in, in the Old Testament, some do believe that this list of jewels corresponds to the breastplate of the high priest, which had how many jewels in it? Twelve. And how many jewels did we just list, although I skipped over them? Twelve. Maybe, not for sure. But it would be yet another eternal reminder of God's grace and his covenant faithfulness. And again, church, I believe demonstrating the continuity of the scriptures from beginning to end, the single thread that runs throughout it all. And so we've looked at measurements, walls, gates, foundation. Let's look at streets. That's what we're probably most familiar with, right? Streets of gold next to the pearly gates. This is the one we get the most. Look at verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold. Now, let me just stop there for a second. In light of the volume of the cube, the number of streets that must be present, how much gold do you think this is? This is lots of gold, like pavement, right? Blacktop which in and of itself is expensive in our day, but imagine paving all of this area with gold. But this gold is different. It's, it's, it says it's like transparent glass. You've probably all heard the, the joke, and it's probably in the dad joke category, right, of the man who wanted to bring his worldly riches to heaven. So he packs a suitcase full of gold. He shows up at the pearly gates, at which St. Peter incredulously rebukes him by saying, why did you bring pavement with you? 
like I said, it's kind of a dad joke kind of thing, right? And which, thank you, thank you. But here's the point, and I think there is a point. It's funny, and maybe not funny, maybe it's more sad, but something seeming to be of such value here on earth, we, we value few things more than gold, right? Is but pavement in the New Jerusalem. Something seeming to be of such value here on earth is but pavement in the New Jerusalem. Church, I think that's a challenge for us to realign our values. We've wasted too much time valuing the things that the world values. And perhaps today is the day that we realign our values with the values of the kingdom and those things that matters most. Well, once again, the streets of gold are described as being unlike any kind of gold we've ever seen. Transparent glass, it says. And again, what's the purpose of the transparency? To project light. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. It's the next detail in the New Jerusalem, and it is glory. It is glory. Go back to verse 11 with me, where it says of the city, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And then in verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The point of these verses is that the defining, visible characteristic of the New Jerusalem is light. It's light. And where does this light come from? It comes from the glory of God. And as we have seen, all of the jewels, all of the gold, the walls, the gates, the foundations, all of it is transparent and designed to allow this glorious light proceeding from God to flow through it as a giant projector. Or I might even say it's resulting actually like a supernatural kaleidoscope. You all remember kaleidoscopes? You didn't have one of those when you were a kid? I haven't seen one of those for a long time. Any of you still have a kaleidoscope? kaleidoscope or one of those tubes you look through and you kind of twist the end of it and you adjust the lenses and there's there's all these patterns of color and you the, the more light that comes into it the brighter and more brilliant are those patterns well the new jerusalem is like this giant supernatural kaleidoscope unlike any kaleidoscope that we can imagine today full of god's glory and again what's that going to cause us to do worship worship Verse 24 says more about this light. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. No, wait, back up, right? Are any of you like scratching your head saying, wait, what's that about? It kind of sounds like there are nations and kings living outside the new Jerusalem, doesn't it? And if so, who are they? There are lots and lots and lots of pages written on this question with some differing views, and I don't want to get into the tall weeds of those differing views. I think the solution is actually much more simple. I believe this verse is simply saying, as it talks about nations, that no matter your ethnicity, nations, or social standing, kings of the earth, all who enter the new Jerusalem will bring their glory to the one who is worthy. So if we look at the earth today, and even if we were to look at the earth during uh, the millennium, who are the people who seem to get the glory? Kings. Kings. The kings of the earth will 
bring. Those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, they will bring their earthly glory with them to the new Jerusalem, and they will lay it at the feet of Jesus, the only one who truly is deserving and worthy of that glory. And when it comes to this whole idea of nations, heaven will be, again, represent, every tribe, tongue, nation will be represented there in glorious harmony, worshiping the Lord together. Regardless of where you're from, how much money you made on earth, we will all be on equal footing in heaven. I believe that's really what that verse is talking about. Well, there's one last aspect of the New Jerusalem for us to examine this morning, and that is its inhabitants. And if you look at verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does was detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's interesting how today's passage ends very similarly to last week's passage. Both times, um, there's clear identification and delineation of who's in and who's out, which causes us to say, well, why do they keep repeating this? Well, because it's important. God wanted John to know, God wants us to know through John, that there is a very clear line of demarcation between those who are either in the New Jerusalem or those who will not be in the New Jerusalem. In this particular verse, it says, nothing unclean or sinful will be in the New Jerusalem. That's why the gates can remain open, right? That's why we can be with God in the eternal Holy of Holies. The problem is that every single one of us is unclean and sinful and therefore disqualified from the New Jerusalem. This glorious New Jerusalem that has just been described would cease to be heaven if we showed up in our fleshly sinful state. We'd have to start shutting the gates and we'd not be able to worship in the intimate presence of God in the Holy of Holies. But praise be to God. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross cleanses all who put their trust in him, making them fit for the new Jerusalem. Not by our effort, not by us trying to wash ourselves, but by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as the hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. I was unclean because of my sin, but He washed it white as snow. He cleansed me. Are you clean today? Nothing unclean will be in the new Jerusalem. So, those are the measurements, the walls, the gates, the foundation, the streets, the glory, the inhabitants. Let's talk briefly about the one last question, which is, how then should we live? Let's go back to Father Abraham for just a moment in that verse in Hebrews 11.10. For he, you can see why now, right? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And just like Abraham, we are to have our minds set on this city. As the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.1, If then you have been raised with Christ, cleansed, fit for the new Jerusalem, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Church, I ask you that question that I asked when we were talking about streets of gold. What are you seeking what is your mind set on? 
Are you living with an earthly, temporal perspective and viewing reality through that lens? Or are you living with a heavenly, eternal perspective and viewing reality through that lens? Because you will arrive at two very different places. Some may argue that, well, Chad, if we do that, um, it'll make us so heavenly-minded that we will be of no earthly good. I've been a pastor for a while now. I don't know that I've yet to meet a person who is so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. Usually it's the other way around, is it not? We are so earthly-minded that we are of little good to heaven. Church, we must realize the fleeting nature of this life and the eternal nature of the next. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, it gives us some of the payoff of living with this perspective. I hope this ministers to some of you here this morning because I know some of you are hurting badly. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul, did he know any hardship in his life? Terrible hardship. A powerful reminder to us that following Jesus doesn't mean a life of ease. Following Jesus likely is going to make your life more difficult. Again, ask our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. But the Apostle Paul, in the midst of great hardship and affliction, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. From an earthly, temporal perspective, again, some of you are going through seemingly insurmountable pain and you can't imagine even making it through. But we have this promise from one who knew pain himself that what is to come, what we've talked about this morning, is so great that it will make what we are going through one day seem so light and momentary because there is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I know that's hard to imagine right now. It's like, oh, but Chad, you don't know how much I'm hurting right now. But take it from the one who knew pain, who knew affliction, who knew hardship. One day we will look back, even at the worst of our pain, and say, it's but a distant memory. I'm here in God's presence. Final thought that kind of pulls it all together. Church, let us be so heavenly-minded that we do the most earthly good. Some of you have been through the experience of being diagnosed with a terminal illness or having a loved one who has been diagnosed with such a thing. It's amazing how in that moment, how your priorities shift, isn't it? All of a sudden, things that used to matter don't matter anymore. And all of a sudden, maybe the things that should have mattered all along, all of a sudden, they matter right away. Should not that be the way that all of us live now all the time? Let us be of so heavenly-minded that we do the most earthly good. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for what you have told us about the new Jerusalem. You've given us a taste. And again, it, I'm sure when we get there, we're like, oh, that's, that's even more spectacular than I even imagined. Or maybe it's a little different than I imagined. Maybe it's a lot different. At any rate, you've given us a taste for the purpose of making us heavenly-minded, of helping us to focus our thoughts on things above rather than on earthly things. So God, if there's a need for us to shift our values and priorities this morning, to realign them with how they belong, 
then God, would you do some Holy Spirit conviction this morning? And God, for those who are suffering, those who are hurting, their pain seems insurmountable. God, may they be given hope today that that, that, that line from the song, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Even so, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen.